go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we just come before you now, and we uh, pray, Lord, that our offering of, of praise today would just be worthy of your great name. Lord, we pray that you give us the energy and the ability to give you praise. Lord, we know that that comes from you, and and Lord, this is such a special time this we get to celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus. Fully, maybe fully understand today what uh, that means and how that changes our life. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for uh, being with us and leading us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you could tell today, I am definitely not in full strength vocally. Um, so please, uh, you, 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 for more reasons than one, you will want to sing out to, or Andy can just turn me down because I sound terrible. And uh, so, so you'll, you'll want to drown me out today, okay? So please do that. Um, and uh, please fill out one of these um, uh, connection cards. And if you, uh, maybe your first or second time uh, visit with us, we'd love to know who you are. And everybody has an opportunity to fill out a, a prayer card. We'd love to know how we can pray for you. And we'll do that every Tuesday morning as a pastor and staff, okay? So please, uh, please do that. Hey, um, is it okay to to go a little country today? Okay, so we get, we, we're, this, is a, this is a toe tapper. Toe tapper, you ready? Go tell it on the mountain.
Well, we should certainly want to go tell it on the mountain, to that great news, shouldn't we? Because uh, this next song says it all. He stepped down from heaven. He stepped down. Didn't have to. Didn't have to. But he chose, because of his love for us, to step out of heaven into humanity. And uh, let's sing this great song about how we should adore him. Sing praises ring to the 
take our offering uh, today, I would like to draw your attention to the screens. As you know, every Christmas, uh, we ask you to give above and beyond to the Christmas offering or international missions offering. Uh, some of us grew up calling it the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and uh, this offering goes directly to our foreign missionaries and helps them. And so, uh, I, I our goal... I forgot what our goal is this year, but uh, uh, we we need to you know make it and uh, because it's such an important offering for our missionaries, and so uh, be thinking about that. And here's what that that uh, that offering is about. We don't see points on a map. They aren't just places to us. We see stories of lives living without the hope found in Jesus. Today, somewhere between the Great Commission and the Great Multitude, we find ourselves facing the world's greatest problem, lostness. Even in the midst of natural disasters, humanitarian crises, and political instability, Southern Baptists send IMB missionaries to give their lives to the lost, living amongst those who have never heard the gospel. People in hard-to-reach places, people in cities, and those who are dispersed and displaced around the world. At the IMB, we believe that missionary presence cultivates gospel access. Gospel access that knows no geographic or social boundary. We believe that missionary presence fuels gospel belief. And we see the results. We see lives transformed, generations forever changed, and churches planted local expressions of the church that take ownership and thrive. God has made our purpose clear. Together, we seek to take the gospel to every nation, to all tribes, to all peoples, to all languages. We don't see places on a map. We see our place in fulfilling the Great Commission. This is our mission. This is your mission. And we are reaching the nations together. Before we pray for this offering and our, our regular tithes and offerings, it just came to, to mind just now. The next song we're going to share with you is one from our uh, Christmas musical tonight. We hope you can all come back and be a part of tonight's uh, Christmas concert with our adult choir and, and or orchestra. And uh, But this, uh, uh, this song is just sort of a... Uh, uh, a what if song. Um, what if hope had never come? What if God had not sent his son? And I was just thinking, what if, what if we did not send missionaries around the world? You know, there's so many what ifs, but, but um, uh, 
that, that we're called to do that, amen? And so we're going to support that. And, uh, but this is just, uh, just sort of a thought-provoking song uh, that I hope you can think about and maybe grasp even more um, uh, gratitude for what God has done for us as we, as we sing this song for you today. Let's pray. Lord God, um, it pains us to think about what if hope never came to a lost and dying world. Uh, but Lord, uh, when we do think about that, we, we are all the more grateful. And we just thank you for the great gift you've given us of your son, Jesus. Uh, Lord, help us to be faithful in our regular tithes and offerings here at the church, but also in our giving above and beyond at the International Mission Board, uh, this special offering this Christmas season. And we just ask your blessing upon it, and we ask you to direct and guide each one of us as we give. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Amen. Well, choir and orchestra, we'll dismiss you all and, and ask our Advent readers, Bo and Kathleen, to come up and share st installment number two of our Advent reading. Good morning. Last week, the candle of deity was lit. Today, we light the second candle, the candle of humanity. This candle reminds us of the incarnation of Christ, the God of eternity taking on human flesh and coming to us, fully God and fully man, to be our Savior and our Messiah. He did not come, or he did not become, he did not become the Son of God when he came to earth. He has always been the Son of God. However, his virgin birth was the supernatural pathway God chose to bring the Son of God into our time and space, to live a perfect life, take the penalty for our sins on the cross, come back to life on the third day, and ascend to the eternal Father in heaven, where Christ Jesus is now seated, making intercession for us. This is the gospel story that began in Bethlehem. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as his sons. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, the power of death. That is the devil, and deliver all those who... the through fear of death, were subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, prepare our lives to receive your beloved son as he, becomes, as he comes to us in humble, simple, and unexpected ways. Let us love the humble ones in our time and place. Let us be humble witnesses of your power and grace. We thank you for our Savior, who is mighty to save. Father, it's in your son Jesus' name we pray this. Well, good morning. Good morning. Bo has a voice <clears throat> that sounds like he could just take off and start singing a country music song, don't he? <laughs> you got a hidden talent you're not telling us about? Yeah. Miss Pam Trotter presented me with a book the other day by Sinclair Ferguson that is a short little book written on the Advent season. And the title of the book is The Dawn 
of Redeeming Grace. And it's designed as a daily devotional, and I was breezing through it, and uh, Sinclair Ferguson begins to talk about time and how for parents, Christmas time just flies by because from December 1 or before, we're trying to shop and we're trying to get things ready and we're, we're just, we don't have enough time because you're aiming toward the 25th and, and there's a lot to do with that. But children don't think that way, right? As a matter of fact, when it comes to children, uh, to them, those 24 days of December are the longest days in the calendar year, right? Because they're anticipating the 25th. And so if we employed language to explain the incarnation like the term Christmas, okay? As believers, when we say that, we're not talking about a Catholic date set on a calendar 25 or 25th because you understand that he wasn't born on the 25th in all likelihood, okay? But you, you put the date on there, okay, the 25th. If we're employing language that we believe speaks of what this event is about, it is the term <clears throat> incarnation. And so just stop and consider the generations that waited for Christmas. Think of the generations, if we're employing the correct language, incarnation slash Christmas, the God the God of eternity becoming man. If we're using that terminology, just think of how the Old Testament believers sought and prayed and longed for and waited for the coming of the promise, the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is clearly depicted in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. In another classic hymn, we hear the sense of waiting and longing. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God, say it, appear, right? However, when we read Matthew's summary of the long years of waiting, we actually find that the winter snow is melting and winter has given way to Christmas because we know that births take place every day of the year, every hour of the day, but the Son of God's birth was different. The Son of God's birth was different. So Matthew 1, 16 and 17 reminds us of all the, the genealogy that's given in verse 1. Don't you love reading through Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy? You think this is kind of boring. Do you, have you ever stopped to think about all the years and all the names and all the time and all the chronology that is the story of the Son of God coming to this earth? And so we uh, are blessed to know that the Word of God has become flesh, that the Son of God has come to seek and to save. Listen to Silent Night. Silent night, holy night, son of God, love's pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Right? He was the king of kings, lord of lords. At his birth, he's not a Johnny come lately. He didn't have his beginning in Bethlehem. 
He's the Son of God for all eternity. Now, do you remember our thematic verse from last week? Yeah, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, here it is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, do I need to preach Isaiah 6 again? Think about that glory of the Son of God, and then note what the text says. For your sake, he became poor. So, even though our Lord Jesus was rich, immensely rich, infinitely rich, Isaiah 6, glory of God, rich, we are told in this text, yet for your sakes, he became poor. That is the time that we're talking about. That's the time that Sinclair Ferguson is reminding us of. Galatians 4, 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. We're seeing the dawning of a new day. We're seeing redemption drawing nigh. This is what that terminology means. So when we see the words, he became poor, what exactly does that mean? Now, some of us are familiar with Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, in other words, he was God, he did not consider that equality as something to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation coming in the form of a servant. Well, folks... The humiliation of Christ did not begin at the cross when, or before the cross when he was beaten and, and when he had the stripes laid upon him. Humiliation was as soon as he left heaven and came to earth, right? That is what the poverty of which we speak, it is speaking of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's my belief that the greatest miracle of all is the incarnation of Christ. The Son of God. What is a resurrection when you're God and you can become a man? You can do absolutely anything you want to do because you're God, right? But I think this is the single greatest miracle. To think that God would become a man is still something, even at 52 years old, that is unfathomable to me. You know, when they were building the Transcontinental Railroad in the 19th century, locomotives would put forth so much smoke to the downside of the tracks of the cars... It was so less desirable, and generally it was called the poor side of town. That's where we get our phrase, wrong side of the tracks. Folks, when Jesus left heaven, he was born on the wrong side of the tracks, but he came from the right side of the tracks. Just think of this for a moment. He left a throne on the right side of the tracks to come to an earth, to earth on the wrong side of the tracks and be born in a barn. When God visited this earth, he was born to a country girl in a shelter with no attendants present. Nowhere to lay the newborn king but in a feeding trough for cows. When he was born, the only trumpet that was blowing was the mooing of the cow and the braying of the mule. Smell was not of perfume, but of animal dung. The God who created everything in heaven and earth and owned it all, owned nothing on earth. Right? He was born in a borrowed womb. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He had to borrow money from, he had to, borrow, to pay taxes, he had to borrow money from a fish. Y'all know the story? 
To feed 5,000, he had to borrow lunch from a boy. To have his last meal, he had to borrow an upper room. To ride into Jerusalem, he had to go on in on a borrowed donkey. There was no room in his birth. There was no home in his life. There was no grave at his death. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You talk about coming down to the poverty level. That's what he did for us. Let that resonate in your mind. For your sake. He was rich, yet he became poor. Now, there is only one way to explain that. Did y'all read the first part of the verse? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? There's only one way to describe that. F.F. Bruce said, if there is among the distinctive articles of the Christian faith, one that is basic to all others, it is this, that our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man for our salvation. The heart of the distinctiveness of Christian faith is the fact that the eternal Son of God became man for us and for our salvation. Now, again, there's all kind of attacks concerning the birth of Christ. There'll be some kind of documentary, right, on the History Channel, probably sometime during Christmas. And the fact is, there are all kinds of attacks upon who Jesus Christ is. But the attacks upon his humanity are just as numerous as the attacks upon his deity. Y'all do know that, right? We tend to think that if we say he's less, that, it, that he's less than God, then we're missing the boat, which you are. But you're also missing the boat if you say that he was less than human. Those two things are vitally important. The basic heretical teaching against his humanity suggested the fact that although he was God, he only appeared to be a man. He had the appearance, the appearance of a man, but not, in reality, the human nature. Others just teach that he was a deified human being. In other words, he was a normal human being until the Spirit of God came upon him at his baptism and resurrection, and then he added this divine nature's uh, nature. Others say he was just humanified deity. He's simply humanity uh, that is put on a jumpsuit, right? In other words, it's just a shell that he was in for a while. He had a real human body that was the extent of it, some say. Still others claim that he was an ordinary person just like you and me with a sin nature just like everyone else on planet earth. I've got news for you. Every one of those are wrong. Dead wrong. Eternal God became man. Surely the greatest miracle of all time. What does the Bible say about the incarnation of the word of God or the incarnation of Christ? There are many, many passages that I could go to to teach us about the incarnation. Uh, there are many passages that, passages that either directly or indirectly focus upon it. Today, let's think about this by looking at a few passages. Are you ready for a Bible drill? Now, you've got to listen fast if I'm going to preach fast. Okay? Don't sleep on me or I'm going to pump the brakes and, and start all over. Okay, let's think about this. Are you kids, everybody ready? Because you're going to be challenged in school about this, and you need to know what you believe and why, and know where to find it in the Bible. Amen? John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is indisputable that John is affirming that the divine word, or logos, is God. There's no doubt that this is describing God in his full essence. God reveals his power and his will, how? Through his word. There's no greater revelation of the character and nature of the Father than through the divine word. And who is called the divine word? It's a title of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the divine rationale of all that God is. So John, at this point, will connect Christ with creation. This is not an accident. You should have Genesis 1-1 resonating in your mind as you read, In the beginning was the Word. And so John is connecting Christ with creation. He's claiming that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, existed before creation. Jesus said this, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. If Jesus Christ was only created after in creation, then that statement he just made makes no sense. Glorify me, Father, with that glorification that I had in the beginning before you created the world or before Christ created the world. So Jesus is God's word made flesh. Now we know what God was thinking when he tried to communicate his love to us, right? If I were to say to you, I'm thinking of a word. And I said, tell me what I'm thinking of. Do you think any of you would ever think of the word right now that I'm thinking of? I don't think you could. What if I tell you the word I was thinking of was bacteria? Well, because everybody's been sick with something. Would you in a million years ever guess that word? Well, it's something like that when God says, not only do I have to explain the word, I've got to show you the word. Now, I know that falls short of the, the eternal word, but he's trying to communicate something to us. And when God sought to communicate, the Bible says in Hebrews 1, in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. That's all he has to say to us is encapsulated in the word, the son of God who existed for all eternity. Now, we know that grammar is important, right? Okay, listen to this. In the beginning was the word. Okay, verse 14. And the word became flesh. It is in those two verses that is important to note the grammatical issues. In verse 1, it says the word was. And in verse 14, it says the word Became And those two verbs, was and became, encapsulate the mystery of the Godhead becoming man. It says the Word was God and the Word became flesh. And when John uses the word flesh, he's talking about the totality of humanity. He could have just used the word man. He could have used the word human. The construction he uses in the word became flesh. He want, God wants you to grasp that Christ himself took on the totality of what it means to be human flesh, yet also was the God of all eternity. So John 1, 1 and 1, 14. Now turn over to Hebrews 2. Y'all having fun yet? Hebrews 2, and this is one of the verses that Bo actually read. Listen to the word of the Lord. See it with your eyes and listen to it, Right? That's why you ought to bring your Bible to church. Amen? Well, you got your phone. I get it. But you're probably checking the time of the KC game. I'm not stupid, right? I hope you're looking at the Word. 
But here it is. Listen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook. Now that's not like two human beings sitting around a table and one of us partakes of food and the other partakes. And we say, well, we're partaking in something. No, what this Greek word means is to take on something that was not previously yours. Your human nature was not previously the Son of God's nature. Are y'all getting this? He's taking on something that was not his to begin with. And the Bible says he partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Well, that's a sermon, isn't it? And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels. And you know what he, uh, Bo read about that. You could read on. But the fact of the matter is what you learn here is that Jesus partook of the same exact nature of us. We all have this in common in humanity. Blood and flesh. That's what humans are made of. But the eternal Son of God came and partook of something that wasn't previously His. And He added it to Himself. And that is the exact nature of us. It's clearly what Hebrews is saying. When Jesus of Nazareth walked around on the days on earth in the days of His flesh, He did not walk around as a superhuman being who floated three foot off the ground. Okay? He walked around just like us. He was fully divine. I get it. He could have chosen to walk three foot off the ground. But he lived out humanity in its fullness. He walked around just like we did without, with one exception. And that's found in chapter 4, verse 15 of Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the Son of God. The biblical writers want to communicate to us that the eternal Son of God became something. He didn't just put on something like someone puts on a coat or something. He became flesh and blood. Christ took on a nature exactly like ours. Okay? Romans chapter 8 verse 3. In my Bible, Romans follows Acts. Chapter 8, verse 3. Listen to God's word. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So here, the Apostle Paul tells us that God sent his own Son, and notice the expression, he gave him or sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. So notice what Paul avoids saying. He's careful to not say that he took on sinful flesh. He did not become a fallen human being. He took on a nature identical to ours with one exception, unfallen. It's important that you see this. He identified with us so closely as possible, yet without sin. He was holy and undefiled, and the word likeness guards that incredible truth for us in the Word of God. All right, John, 1, John chapter, 1 John 4, verse 1. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Let that resonate in your mind, what that's saying. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. Again, there was a heresy in John's day. It was in its earliest stages, and we might call it an incipient form of Gnosticism. And what's, what's the fundamental principle? It's that the flesh and the spirit are incompatible. Because flesh is evil and spirit is good. John is safeguarding the teaching of the doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God. And he says, this is how you know a person is of the Spirit of God. They confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is, they confess the incarnation of the Son of God. They believe in the complete humanity of Christ. He's so strong that he says in this regard... That if you can't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, it shows that you are not from God. And in fact, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in you. You're just as much an enemy of the gospel, folks, for rejecting his humanity as you are an enemy of the gospel if you reject his deity. So in looking at these four passages of scripture, can we all admit that the incarnation, God becoming man, is a well established doctrine in the Word of God. By incarnation, this is what we mean. Got a pen? Paper? The eternal Son of God, the second person of the divine trinity, became a man taking upon himself complete human nature without sin and without ceasing to be eternally God. When he adds humanity, he doesn't lose one iota of his eternal deity. We actually would refer to it more as subtraction by addition. When he laid aside his eternal glory to come to this earth, he didn't lose any of his deity. As a matter of fact, his humiliation was not subtraction of deity. It was the addition of who you are. Right? The humiliation was the addition of humanity. That's how he became poor on our part. For us. He did this for us. So when he became a man... He did not cease to be anything that he was through endless ages. He becomes something in time that he never was before, man. The incarnation teaches us that Jesus Christ is one person with two distinct natures, divine and human. He is eternally God who became man. And when he becomes a man, he does not cease to be God. Since he has become man, he is forever the God-man. Forever. Listen to Charles Wesley as he exalts the Lord. Veiled, oh, well, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hell incarnate deity. That's what he's trying to get you to see. Now, why the incarnation? Why did God become a man? Why not just send an angel? Sounds like a better plan to me. Why not just send an angel? Why not just create another Adam? Surely. There was another way. Let me give you four reasons that the word needed to become flesh. Okay, I'm, I'm up in the air and I'm starting my descent. All right? 
Landing gear is not out yet, but it's coming out. Okay, I want you to hear these four things, all right? The Word became flesh so that Christ could fulfill all the covenant promises. He promised to come and dwell with His people, folks. Did He not? Over and over and over again, the entire, entire story of the Bible is that God is looking for a place to live. God is looking for a place to dwell. Solomon says, Lord, I know we've built this temple, but this temple cannot contain you. There's nothing in this world that can, ta- can contain you, yet he's looking for a place to live. And he seeks to dwell with Adam and Eve in the garden. But what happens? Because of their sin and rebellion, God, who created them out of the dust of the earth, now becomes an unwelcome guest in his own garden. God raises up Abraham and his people from him. And what was the covenant promise? I will multiply your seed as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. He promises by covenant that he will come and save his people and dwell with them forever. Where does the covenant promise begin? Genesis 3.15. The seed of woman will come, and it, you will bruise its heel, but you shall crush its head. And so therefore... That's called four gleams of the gospel. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. So he talks about accomplishing his covenant through the seed of a woman. Then it moves to Abraham. The seed of Abraham. Then it moves to the seed of David. And then on and on the covenant promises unfolding throughout all of scripture. I am your God and you shall be my people. And there's this anticipation that is heightening. Can you imagine what Simeon felt like? Have you ever read that? I'm chasing a rabbit, but it just popped in my mind. Listen to the Gospels, if you would. Luke, his encounter, I think it's Luke 2. Let me get over here. It's also in, okay, yes. So here, in Luke chapter 2, he is anticipating. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was a righteous man and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You can't beat that with a stick, right? I mean, I'm not checking out until I see him. Talk about the providence of God. I mean, this dude is not going to live one day longer than he's supposed to, nor is he going to die one day sooner than he's supposed to, right? And he's waiting, and it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. And it came upon him, and it came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to him for him to, according to the customs, he took him up in his arms and blessed the Lord. Listen to verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. I hope you understand that he is the fulfillment. The central element is the amazing mystery of the one who comes in the seed of the woman. True through Abraham, David, Judah. There's no doubt that it would be a human being, yet it was woven throughout the scripture that when this man comes to fulfill the covenant promises, it would also be God himself. Not just a man, not just another king. The prophet Isaiah says, a virgin shall bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. He would later say, for unto us a child is Born and a, all right, there's your deity. The son 
has always existed for all time, but yet he would be born as a child. Child born, son given to us. And then in Micah 5, it states that he would be born in Bethlehem, but his origins go back to all eternity. He is the ancient of days. So why send the God-man so that all the covenant promises could come to pass? This was the completion of everything that God had promised to his people. Now you're in 2 Corinthians. If this doesn't make you shout, this doesn't get your wood wet, then something is wrong with you. Wet wood burning. You may be wet wood, but you'll burn with this one. Look what the Word of God says. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Just listen to this wonderful verse. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. You understand? That's why he sent the Son of God to fulfill all the covenant promises. Number two, the Word became flesh so that he could be the perfect mediator between God and man. Do you remember Eli says to his sons, if one sins against another man, they can find one to mediate between them. But if a man sins against God, who will intercede for him? Is that a problem? If we sin against each other, we are peers equal. Another peer can come in and mediate. We can sort out our differences as peers equal. Who can be a peer and stand between you and God? You know, this was Job's divine dilemma. And in many funeral services, I go to this so people can see this divine dilemma. But in chapter, Job, in chapter 9, Job faces this dilemma. And in verse 1, he says this, how can a man be in the right before God? Folks, if you're lost today, that, that is the most important question that should be in your mind and heart. How can I be right with God? How can I be in the right before God? He faces this dilemma. You may think you have a case, God says to Job. But if we go to court together, you can work out your brief, but it's not going to work. Because you can't mediate between me and you. When you defy me, God says, you'll actually get hurt, Job. So you can't rush into court. You can't make your case with God. He is not like us. But the Bible says in verse 32 of Job 9, I need a mediator. I need a daysman. I need somebody to mediate between me and God. And boy, was Job ever asking for something he probably knew less of, but God told him to say it, right? He needed Jesus. He needed a redeemer. So Job says it. I need someone to lay his hand on both of us. One on God and one on me. And equally be in the stead of both parties and bring us together. And folks, you know, at the end of the day, this is what the priesthood could never do. Because that priest, every time he went in on the day of Yom Kippur, he had to make atonement for his own sin before he could make atonement for the sins of the people. And this repetition that went year and year, year, year after year after year, could never ever take away sin. The quality and the equality were lacking. There's no way it was going to happen. So Job is confessing. And he's frustrated. But the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was the only one that could win the battle. He's the only one that could come 
and make propitiation for the sins of the people. He's the only one that could be the faithful mediator. And Paul says it. There's only one mediator between God and man. And that is Jesus Christ the righteous. We can say this to the whole world on national TV. And if they put me in jail, I'm fine with it. You'll never be saved any other way than through the Lord Jesus Christ. The once for all mediator given for the sins of the people. There is no salvation apart from Christ. Period. Why? Because only one was fully God and fully man. Only one can mediate between a sovereign holy God and sinful people. That's why the Son of God had to become man. Fulfill all the covenant promises and become the mediator between God and man. All right? Number three, the Word became flesh so that Christ would become the last Adam and the perfect, perfect representative of his people. Now Martin Luther had a song that mentioned this. That Christ was the man of God's own choosing. Now what does that mean? Well, he came in the original design that God gave Adam as the ruler over the earth. He is the perfect Adam, spoken of in Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2 and Ephesians 1. What do we know about the first Adam? He failed. Christ comes into the world as the perfect man and he fulfills all things. Yet the parallel reaches farther. When Adam comes into this world, he was placed in a garden where he sins. The last Adam, Paul's description of Christ. I'm just going to jump over one page. Listen. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So we're dealing with Christ, the second Adam. The first Adam fell before the serpent's temptation. The last Adam crushed the serpent under his feet. And overcame all of those temptations. The first Adam disobeyed in the garden. The last Adam obeyed the will of God in the garden of Gethsemane. And went to the cross and therefore procured our deliverance. The first Adam was cut off from the tree of life. Y'all remember that? The last Adam died on a tree. Making the tree of life to all who will believe. Today he is a willing and able savior to save you. And finally, the Word became flesh so that the immortal could die. He became flesh and blood, according to Hebrews 2. Why? So that he would be able to die and in our place and make that perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Bible's clear, folks, that there's a penalty for sins. And it demands, according to the Bible, a perfect sacrifice. And the Bible makes it clear that there's a penalty for our sins. It actually culminates in physical and spiritual death. In the day you eat that, you shall surely die. In the day that you eat it, so we all have the death sentence of suffering and death. This was the penalty from a just and holy God. The Son of God, eternal God, becomes man so that the immortal can die in our place and become our sacrifice for the penalty of our sin. The incarnate God suffered and died in our place for our salvation. Merry Christmas. There is no greater surprise in all the earth than that, the God him, that God himself would come down and become a man so that he could die for us. The glory of the gospel. Paul says, now no one is likely to die for a good person. Would you consider yourself good? Though someone might be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending his own son to die for us while we were still sinners. That's grace, ladies and gentlemen. 
Folks, the value of his death for us is infinite. Think about this for a moment. B.B. Warfield wrote, Because he is a man, he is able to pour out his blood. And because he is God, his blood is infinite in its value to save us. The only thing that could forgive your sins and pardon you from hell that you deserved and the punishment that you deserved was not some martyr who came to deliver you from your sentence. It had to be the most valuable death to pay the penalty for our sins. And this debt could only be paid through the God-man. That's the only way. That's why the Son of God became a man. I hope you understand those four things. That's why it was important. That's why he couldn't send another Adam. That's why he could not send an angel. It had to be the infinite Son of God who gave an infinite price so that you could be forgiven of your sins. That's what Christ did for us. All right, finally in John 1.14. This is it. Plane screeching down through the lane. All right. Back to John 1.14. Listen to it. And we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father. Look at these words. Full of, say it, grace and truth. That's a powerful invitation, folks. Isn't it? And that's the invitation I want to end with. It tells us that Jesus came to earth full of, say it, grace and truth. Now, think about this. Grace and truth are two attributes that don't often appear together. Grace and truth. We humans tend to err on one side or the other, don't we? You husbands, go ahead and fess up. You wives, some of us are more graceful, grace-giving, graceful. Some of us are more down the line. This is the truth. This is what you got to deal with. If we stress grace, we are often too quick to forgive without demanding true repentance. Isn't that true? If we stress truth, then we often sound harsh and unloving. Boy, have I ever been told that. Okay? We need both, don't we? If we forgive too quickly, we make light of wrongdoing. If we judge too harshly, we make forgiveness impossible. Therefore, grace and truth. These two words explain why Jesus came to earth. Grace and truth. Listen to this carefully. They go to the very heart of the gospel. Because he was full of grace, he died for you and me while we were yet sinners. But because he was full of truth, he was able to pay for our sins completely. He forgives the sinner because he bore the sin in himself. Here is truly good news for all people. Folks, because he is graceful, you can come just as you are this morning. He is easy to approach, and you don't have to clean yourself up. As a matter of fact, you can't. You can't. Can a leper change his spots? No, you can't clean yourself up. Who among us lives such a pure life that no dirt can be found in your past? Suppose we were to put up a video today of your life. How about your thought life? Katie barred the door, right? Yes. Who among us has lived such a pure life that no dirt can be found in our past? It's precisely at this point that the gospel message becomes so relevant. No matter how checkered your record may be, no matter what sins you've committed, Christ invites you to come just as you are. With no preconditions except a sincere desire to put your trust in Jesus 
and a sincere desire to be forgiven by the only mediator that can forgive you of your sins. Because if you do, he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that awesome? Because he is truthful, you can come in complete confidence that he will keep his promises. Do y'all believe that? He's graceful, and he offers that to you to be saved, to be forgiven of your sins when you put your trust in him. But he is truthful. That means if you come to him doing exactly what the word of God says and the Holy Spirit is drawing you, he is truthful, which means you can have confidence that our God kept his promise. Amen? So, when he promises a complete pardon for your sins, that's what he means. You can take it to the bank. There's only one Savior, and he's a trustworthy Savior. Do you need a trustworthy Savior? Well, fear not. Jesus is full of truth. Do you need a forgiving Lord? Come to him. Why? Because he is full of grace. Amen? To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for that you are full of grace and truth. Lord, I pray this invitation will fall on hearts and ears that are listening, that can hear what you're saying to them. Lord, thank you for redemption. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your incarnation. May we marvel at the incarnation of the Son of God, that you are fully God, yet you were willing to become man, to fulfill all the covenant promises, to become our mediator, to be that last final representative of what our God intended for man to be. And Lord, we praise you for it. We give you glory. Lord, thank you for bearing our guilt, bearing our sin, taking that upon yourself. You bore in your body our sins. Your word says that. You who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be in us. We praise you for it, Lord. If there's someone lost today, may you, Father, in your grace and mercy, you are graceful. You are truthful. May you, Father, remove the callousness from their hearts, the scales from their eyes, as your word reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4. You have shown in us, by the light of the gospel, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would do that today. Only you can redeem hearts. Only you can help people see the glory of the gospel. Only you can help people see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. May that happen today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing the saving power of his great name. Humbly to the earth you came, born into the world to save, God with us in
Marsha Meadows, and she's Jim's mama. And uh, I'm telling you what, when she walks by, he, he's going to obey, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, rem- sometimes, right? Miss Marsha said to me, I spent 50-something years in Greene County, and now I've come to Christian County. Amen. <laughs> so she wants to unite with uh, our church membership here. We, we already love her so much. She's been a blessing. Uh, but also, we want to be a blessing to her, right? And so she wants to stand before you today, desires to membership at First Baptist Ozark. And at some point in time, we'll get her through the new members class. But we rejoice with God bringing her here. Amen. All right. God bless you. I thought you told me I didn't have to go through the members. We'll let you slide. Whatever you ask, okay. you got it. Amen. All right. All right. All right. Y'all can go back there toward Mr. Don if you want to, Miss Marcia and Jim. All right. One more verse. I don't want to, after someone joins, you never know what God's going to do. Let's sing one more, all right? Please, don't bank on your own goodness and your own righteousness to give you acceptance into heaven. It has never happened, and it will never happen. By the works of the law will no man ever be justified. Only Jesus could be your righteousness, take your place on Calvary, and in turn take your sin from you and give you his righteousness. And when the Father looks at those who are righteous, he sees not your obedience. He sees the obedience of the Son of God on your behalf. I would bank my hope on that. Make sure that's what you're doing in your own life. Okay, uh, please uh, take note that on Saturday we'll have, uh, what do we call it? Giving Christmas, and there are 35 families and 86 kids that we'll, we'll seek to bless for Christmas as our church and give them the gospel, okay? So we want to pray for that. We got enough money? We could always use more. <laughs> Amen. Okay, no, you guys Thanks. have been amazingly blessed, like giving, and it has been 
amazing to see. I may or may not have cried in Walmart and TJ Maxx from the outpouring from our church. So Amen. thank you guys so, so Amen. much. Yeah, thank you so much for your giving. I, I think that there was 125000 given last week as an offering from this church in one week's time. Uh, that is absolutely incredible. But there's a lot of, lot of nuances in that. Most of that's the general fund, right? And we just praise God for the giving of his people. Uh, please come back tonight uh, for the choir. Pray for Brother David. He needs our prayers, right? Amen. That God will touch his vocal cords. And, but please come back for that tonight. And would you covenant with me as your pastor to pray for the Jenkins family? Uh, Mr. Jim fell while we were at church. Andy had to go home. You know that um, he, he has cancer. And um, he, he, wants to, he wanted to spend Thanksgiving and Christmas with his family. Before the Lord Jesus takes him to glory. And uh, we need to pray that God will grant him that desire. Uh, but we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that still doesn't make it too easy for us down here. Right? I know what it's like to lose a dad to cancer. Uh, but I also know the joy of knowing that he's with Jesus. And so just, just pray for Mr. Jim and the family. Okay? All right. Anything we've missed, David? Well, just a special invitation. Just a quick show of hands. How many are either in a high school choir, church choir, college choir, has participated in singing the Hallelujah Chorus? Raise, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, tonight, we're going to invite, if you've sung it before, we're going to invite you to, to join us in our very last song. We're singing the Hallelujah Chorus tonight in our very last song. So please uh, come and be a part of that tonight, and we'll ask you to join for that, for that last song. Uh, that last how you chorus. So, so please come back tonight, and we would love to uh, just worship with you tonight as we present our Christmas uh, concert for you. All right, well, let's, uh, let's go and, and have a great day, and we'll see you back at 530.